Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On today's show, we chat with portfolio manager Dan Kelly as he provides an overview of founder-led companies, outlining their differences, risks, and his own predictions for their growing evolution. Dan explains that a successful founder must have a long-term focus on the firm they are growing, be able to see beyond just the market numbers, and provide a unique service or product to customers to stand out. In the last couple of years, Dan says we have been able to see founder-led companies get a full economic cycle, which included a secular low in interest rates and lots of fluid aspects and dispersion in returns. Dan, in particular, has invested in many founder-led sectors within the Russell 3000, with some of the biggest drivers in these sectors being healthcare and biotech. He mainly invests in public equities that are later in their development, and many of those relationships stem from his professional or personal circles. Not all of these companies are American in his portfolio, as 10% come from Canada or Europe. Dan believes that founder-led companies need to be adaptable and keep up with their ever-changing environment in order to maintain a consistent level of growth. Not every company was shown to be equipped for this as proven by their declines, and Dan predicts that founder-led companies will generally require even more growth to be at all profitable. Thankfully, however, some of these companies have displayed some proof of this. Dan also discusses the process for selling the companies, what happens when a founder moves on from the company or passes away, and the role of AI for acquiring market share. This podcast was recorded on October 17, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. You know, founder-led, we've discussed this before, but but take us back to what we're talking about. We're talking to the companies that at one point actually were garage projects, but somehow made it, right? I mean, this is this is what we go back to. In many cases, it's really the entrepreneurial spirit coming to life, which I can't believe it's been five years, to be honest. Uh, Congrats. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you very much. We piloted this idea in 2016. We've done an extensive analysis looking at this universe of of founder-led companies, given our inclination that it was a fruitful place to hunt for alpha. And our analysis really found that that it is quite indeed fruitful. It generates on a historical basis. We've seen about 150 to 200 basis points of historical outperformance by this founder's universe. And hopefully with the steward at the wheel or at the helm of the fund, we can we can exceed that 150 basis points of annualized performance over time if it persists. That's amazing. I mean, so so what is in there? What what is a founder that is sitting at the table at the board, usually at the point where you know some other people have had to come on by that point, right? I mean, they they've run with the idea, they're in the company, and they they've stayed at high levels, but they probably have some other people advising them. I mean. What what is sort of that founder like who's made it to the board table? 
You know, Pamela, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head here and that these are really unique individuals. There aren't many people that can scale a company to become public and can ultimately grow it to be you know, a much bigger company in the public markets. Usually it takes a, a different set of skills to grow it from the garage that you referenced to ultimately you know, manage, in some cases, tens of thousands of people. And so what I'm really focused on is trying to find those unique in, individuals that have a, a few special characteristics. I'll, I'll name a few, but I don't think it'll do it justice because it really takes years of getting to know these founders, sitting across from them, looking them in the eye, seeing if that vision that they, they've harnessed is ultimately going to be able to, to become a reality. So a few of the, the key characteristics I'm focused on is, is the very point that you um, highlighted is that entrepreneurial, that, that innovative spirit where they're seeing something special that the market is not seeing. They want to provide a unique service, a unique product um, that ultimately, if they execute on being able to create the product or deliver the service at scale, uh, it will lead to a, a big opportunity. So I want a big opportunity. I want a vision that's something different that the market is likely skeptical of out of the gate. So that innovative entrepreneurial spirit is, is first and foremost. The second thing is where I think as an investor, I can really appreciate this characteristic, which is our interests end, end up being very aligned. And that is having a ton of skin in the game. So these founders usually bet the ranch on their vision. So they'll, they'll max out their credit cards. They'll get credit lines. Hopefully it's a very cash generative business early in the life cycle of the company. But unfortunately, Pamela, as you know, to scale anything is very capital intensive and could often you know, be a, a, a prohibitive factor. So do they have a lot of skin in the game? Are they betting on, on himself or herself to achieve that vision? And then there are other, other things, long-term focus. I think the public markets over time Pamela, have become so short-term focused. I was just going to ask you that because you see these individuals and they have gone from, I'll just ask it, like, how do you know they're not there just to take it to market and cash out? I mean, you know, because some people do that, nothing wrong with that, but that's not what you're looking for. No, it's not. In fact, I do keep an eye on that. If I see a lot of insider selling, it uh, usually leads to a conversation. Um, I do understand that there likely are debts and, and liabilities that need to be paid off as they uh, generate some success, but I want them having most of their, their skin in the game on the longer term. And so, um, you know, it's not, uh, not every founder is going to be a successful CEO in the public markets. So I'm really measuring them right, right into the IPO process and, and, and thereafter to, to see how they handle the, the short-term pressures, which is a whole different uh, ball game. Uh, that they discover very quickly. Do you think now that you've, you've run the fund for, for five years, and I know that you, you had it in a different version, like sort of testing it out earlier, but do you typically, or what percentage are these companies before they get to market and you've invested in them, or do you tend to wait to kind of see how they perform as a public company? I'm sure you're following them, but what, what, what ends up happening? Yeah, Pamela, it's a great question. So fortunately, given Fidelity's scale and resources, we get to meet these founders very early in their life cycle. It's usually uh, executives from former companies that we did businesses, business with. It's usually relationships, friend of friends um, that need financing. Uh, so you get to meet them early. And uh, during that time, 
you, you do have opportunities to invest. We're not uh, focused here on, or I'm not focused on uh, venture capital uh, per se. And so it's a very small percentage of my fund that would be in early stage uh, companies. It's, it's mostly later stage private companies that I would invest in. And even that would be a small percentage. So the majority of this fund is uh, more is, is public equities. That's that's fascinating. And and by their nature, but we sort of mentioned this in the intro to you, but there would be a growth bias. I mean, uh, so just take us through that, because then, then I'm going to ask you a little bit about what a growth company has looked like over the last couple of years. But just to get that sort of in there for investors, this this has a growth bias, this fund. Yes, I, I might frame it a little differently because we've been in such a unique period over the last five years where uh, we've seen boom and bust periods for, for growth companies. What, what I'm trying to find, uh, Pamela, are, are companies that are going to be a lot bigger over time. Uh, so that might be, in, in, in a lot of cases, you need a lot of growth to become bigger. Uh, and, you know, stocks follow earnings. So I want companies that are going to generate a lot more earnings in the future. And so that does lean growthy. But um, I do think there sometimes are opportunities in, in non-growth companies that get really mispriced. And something is happening uh, in terms of positive change that I think could um, change the way the market uh, values the company over time. And interestingly, we're going to look at the biggest drivers of performance for this fund over the last five years. It's probably been equally split between growth companies and what I would say, um, I wouldn't say value companies, but I'd say more growth at a reasonable price uh, companies, which is more in line with my investment approach. Okay. Oh, it's really helpful. So, we all know that companies have had to absolutely pay more. Their cost of capital has gone up. No matter what they want to do in terms of borrowing, uh, it costs a whole lot more than it did. And we certainly saw the tech sector have a, a massive sell-off last year. Lots of those companies are founder-led. Tell us a little bit about the last couple of years for you, from your perspective. You're at the wheel. You're looking at companies that you think obviously have a long-term horizon, a, a profile that you like. What's it been like to watch them go through, some of them go through a pretty serious re-rating, essentially? You know, Pamela, it's been an incredibly exciting time over the last few years. Uh, I mean, when you think about it, we effectively got a, a full economic cycle in a period of, of, of two or three years, and we got a secular low in interest rates that contributed to a lot of dispersion of returns. And as a stock picker, as a portfolio manager, the best environment to add alpha is really a uncertain environment where there's a lot of fluid aspects to it. And that's exactly what we've had. So if you think, given that growth-leaning nature that you described, we saw the pandemic really turbocharged a few areas of, of the economy, namely the technology sector, where we were all working from home and leveraging different you know, products and services to still go about our daily lives, uh, and also the healthcare sector in terms of you know, innovating, creating vaccines, et cetera, those were, were powerful, um, powerful drivers of, of their business. And so the, the great thing about that environment is I was able to you know, leverage our research department and our resources here at Fidelity and meet with companies that were big beneficiaries of the pandemic. And then over time, when when some of that demand stimulation and, and 
and tailwinds that were at the backs of these companies started to feel like they were plateauing as we all bought as many rugs and lamps and stuff online while we were stuck at home and then decided to change our lives. I was able to pivot into other companies that were more attractive on my kind of growth at a reasonable price approach. So, so it was a really exciting, invigorating, and fruitful time to be a stock picking portfolio manager. And just because you mentioned, I mean, so I was sort of pointing in the direction of, of a lot of the tech companies, but and but you know, you brought up healthcare. So, so what are some of the other sectors? It's not just tech that's founder led. Um, yeah, that's the beauty. This is a diversified fund. So we're benchmarked to the Russell 3000. Uh, I have investments across most sectors uh, that are, um, you know, kind of in, in the Russell 3000. So this, I think a lot of people think that because these are founder-led companies, they tend to be newer economy companies. What do I mean by that? They tend to be, you know, um, companies that were formed in the last 20, 30 years. And as a result, that gets to that growth-leaning nature, et cetera. But I am finding... Uh, interesting founder-led companies across every sector. Uh, and I actually did a, a deep dive on, on performance. I, I try to learn from uh, performance and, and, and always you know, try to become a better portfolio manager. And interestingly, um, you know, some of the biggest drivers of performance uh, were across a variety of sectors. So not just technology, we had healthcare, we had energy, we had consumer discretionary, we had biotech. Um, so it's been pretty uh, diversified in terms of the underpinnings uh, of, of this fund. And and for, I mean, you're obviously joining a whole bunch of Canadian investors here right now. Is it is it outside of the U.S.? Is it U.S. exclusive? Or what, what sort of ability do you have to, to add elsewhere if you want? So it is a U.S. benchmark. There are also 3,000 U.S. benchmark, but I have uh, tremendous flexibility. So I'm about, say about, 10% outside the U.S. right now. I have a few Canadian companies, um, but I have a few companies uh, outside um, North America as well. So I, I really go to where my process drives me. So if I'm finding mispricings in Europe or you know, in founder-led companies, I'm going to move capital over there. And, um, and so that's, that's one of the, the uh, another aspect I appreciate about the flexibility of, of the founder's universe. So given that there, there was probably a succession that you look for, founder-led. They used to call it uh, lead man risk. It can be lead woman risk, of course, but lead person risk. But uh, what do you do if, if the person steps aside or has, you know, dies? I mean, you, you must have to have a, a situation where you deal with that. How, how do you deal with that? So great question. There's, there's a few answers to that. First, when a founder passes away, which is unfortunately the most common exit for a founder. It's usually, usually either death or something's going kind of wrong. And why is it those two typical conclusions? It's uh, because most founders view these companies as their babies and they right. tend to not leave. Even if they exit the C-suite, they usually still have tremendous influence via stock ownership or they're on the board or they're adding value in some other way. So when a founder passes away, I put the investment on a one-year shot clock where I see if there's an, uh, a generation below or an heir to take over and apply that same methodology and some of those same kind of unique attributes that I just described on, on founders. And it's rare. I have to be honest. I work at a family-led company, and it's rare that 
you can see this multi-generational leadership that can still embody some of the original attributes of the founder. And I think I'm fortunate to work in a place like Fidelity that has been able to do that. So I do own some family-led companies, but it's more the exception than the rule, Pamela. And then why do I put it on a one-year shot clock? I don't like to be a forced seller ever in the marketplace. That typically leads to poor returns. So when you think about it, a lot of what the founder built in terms of the foundation and some of the key things they were implementing from a strategy standpoint, they don't go away the day the founder dies. And I wouldn't want to be forced to not participate in some of those kind of, you know, seeds that were planted. So I, I tend to keep an eye on it and uh, I, don't, I don't sell right away. So uh, another question, I mean, related. So if the founder sells their company, what happens? I'm, I'm sure many of the really interesting companies that you like, other bigger companies and competitors like too, and, and they want to gobble them up and bring them on board. In that situation, what, what happens to the investment you have in that company? It's, it's bought. Do you then sort of stay? What, what's your approach? It's rare that a founder-led company will be acquired and the founder sticks around at the new company. So again, I don't have a hard and fast rule because hard and fast rules, I, I think, um, tend to, to, to not be correlated with maximizing uh, value. Uh, and so I, I will keep an eye on it. Sometimes founders will roll their ownership into the new company. Um, there's often tax incentives to do that. And so they'll have influence through their ownership. Uh, but again, once, it, once the founder decides to sell their baby, a lot of the magic is gone. You know, uh, so I'm, I'm yeah. trying to harness the magic, Pamela. I want to take, awesome. you know, those little seeds that the founder is sowing and I want to see it grow into this, these big trees. And if the founder decides to, to um, sell, it's usually something starting to, uh, the dream is starting to erode a little bit. Right. Okay. That's fascinating. That's so interesting to, to just sort of see the way that you look at that. I want to get into sort of the topic of demand, what's coming literally in the future, which is AI, <laughs> but all related to sort of the digitized world that, that we've been moving into for an awfully long time now. I was going to ask you how much is further, except for AI is obviously the answer to that. So, so what of the opportunities of the future that, that are in this realm? A lot, of, a lot of portfolio managers seem to say, we're still, we're still waiting to find out. I don't, I don't know if that's still the case for you. How do you look at it? Well, Pamela, I think you touched on a really important topic that will drive so many end markets over the next few years, and that's uh, generative artificial intelligence. And I think it's going to permeate every industry, and it's probably going to be one of the most exciting things over a decade plus. Uh, I think it'll be slow to evolve in, in some aspects and fast uh, in others, and that I think there's a real productivity advantage in the short term, but some of the game-changing applications that could be applied as we grow artificial intelligence, large language models, and harness them and adjust them, I think a lot of that we don't even know yet. So I think we're in the first inning. It's going to be an exciting place to be. The good news is I've met a lot of founders in the Gen AI space. I continue to look for interesting companies that I think could, uh, could be much bigger over time and I want to participate in that for my shareholders. So, uh, and I think there'll be kind of rails created with generative AI that you can then piggyback on with these new applications that might be across a lot of different sectors. So 
Uh, I think generative AI is a is a buzzword, but it really is going to be everywhere. Hey, have you met a founder who's who's actually super young, like someone in their I don't know teens or really early twenties? And I'm just kind of curious if you, if you've met one or two of them, and and you could kind of see it in them. On the tech side, they tend to a lot of founders as you meet them when their companies are. I would say less mature. They tend to be very young. Usually they're data scientists, uh, engineers. So they're not, rarely are they 16, um, but uh, they, they're usually, you know, they're, they're 20s, early 30s. And some of the really small companies, unfortunately, aren't of the scale that I, I can invest in. And usually they get acquired by by, by other companies before I, I tend to meet them. But yeah, no, it's exciting. You're seeing people that think differently. That's the beauty of this fund. I mean, founders bring a special sauce to the table and, and uh, it's often not linear thinking, Amla, which, which is so exciting because they, they literally are seeing the future differently. So, so just to go back a little bit in order to go forward, this, this idea of every company grappling with new cost of capital, it sort of took a bite out of the, the growth story for a while there. And, and presumably for, I mean, I can sort of think of the tech companies as examples, but I'm sure there are many other companies too. They just had to allocate their cash differently because they had to really allocate it in a place where there truly is demand. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've watched that evolve from your side of things? Some real decisions had to be made over the course of the last year by, by the leads at companies, by founder-led companies. Yeah, Pamela, the world changed pretty quickly over the past year and a half. When you think back to two years ago in 21, there was just so much liquidity in the system. Rates were really low. Capital was free-flowing. And there was very little checks and balances on these founders for delivering profitable growth. And that can be a blessing and a curse. When, when a company's in a sweet spot of growing, you, you kind of want them to maximize, you know, getting users on the platform, for example, and, and, and really kind of grow the, the pie and worry about monetizing it later. On the curse side of things, it can really permeate a culture. And some cultures are not able to change when the environment changes. And I think we've observed that over the last 18, 24 months when all of a sudden, the cost of capital ratcheted up dramatically, and the market forces to get these companies to focus on profitability changed literally overnight. And I've been able to observe through my relationships, through, through the markets, which founders were able to culturally kind of dictate that the organization move in a different direction. And some founders were not, and they're still losing a lot of money and they're going to, they could ultimately have a capital structure issue where they either dilute the value for shareholders or potentially do some permanent damage and impair, you know, the overall value of the company. So, so it's really uh, been eye-opening to observe this in a short period of time because everything is, you know, harmonious when, when capital is freely flowing. And then you have to have these tough conversations with founders and see which ones are able to kind of pivot. Uh, and I think we've observed that over the last year where on the positive side, I've been able to see some of the founder-like companies I own in this fund really deliver profitable growth. So still grow the top line, show some real operating leverage by cutting expenses. And that tends to unlock a lot of value from an equity cost to capital standpoint. And those have been great drivers performance for this fund over the last you know eight or nine months.
So I have to ask you about the, you know, whatever. I am an optimist, but what about on the other side? What about those that didn't do it? What, what, what were those conversations like? Can you share just a little glimmer? Because it must have also been the case that, that some founder-led companies didn't want to shift strategies. Well, that is, that, uh, I think one important aspect of this fund and why I'm so happy it's 90, you know, 5% plus public equities is if the founders are not willing to see that the world has changed despite these tough conversations, I can move on and, and sell and uh, buy other you know, companies where the founders are good stewards of capital and they recognize that the world's uh, changed. So those are tough conversations. Sometimes it's not one conversation, it's three, four, and it feels like you're banging your head against the wall at times because founders will tell you they get it, but they really don't get it. Um, and usually you have to speak with your, um, you know, wallet. And uh, that wakes them up when they see their cost of capital starting to change. Uh, it, it becomes very obvious that, that the world has changed. And so we try to, here at Fidelity, coach. Um, you know, we're partners with these companies. We want to see them succeed. Uh, we want to see them grow to be much bigger companies. And we're trying to coach them uh, on when these things happen because we're living it on a day-to-day -day basis and they're, they're focused on their organizations. And usually that becomes a, a very, um, you know, symbiotic uh, relationship. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, uh, companies cannot change or culturally can't change and we just move on. What, what would you say is the average size of, of companies that, that you have in the fund? Yeah, so we tend to screen a little smaller uh, than the benchmark from a, a median market cap standpoint. Uh, as I mentioned, Pamela, I'm really trying to find the, the, the future mega caps with a fund like this. And, and so as I look back historically, a lot of the, the, like the top 10, 15 um, drivers of performance have been companies that were mid caps, smaller mid caps that became large caps. Um, and, and it's really not been as driven by the mega cap uh, stocks that have been driving the market, which I think speaks to uh, hopefully the, the, the fruitful um, you know, universe that we're playing in across multiple end markets. And it's not just a, a, a one-way bet on a particular sector, et cetera. So I'm trying to find companies that are you know, sub 10 billion market cap, sub 5 billion market cap that I think can grow five or 10 fold. And as I look back again at performance over the last five years, a lot of the top 10 have, have been, you know, three, four, seven baggers um, to, to drive performance, which is, which is exciting. Are any of the CEOs, that, the founders that you speak with, yeah. not talking about AI? You know, it's funny. Um, I think they all are talking about AI. Almost like an existential um, issue, right? Because if you're not investing a little bit of money in AI to either enhance your productivity um, or to potentially maximize your profit potential, your competitor might be. And so there's a bit of a, a sense of urgency um, with a realization that we're early. So there's a lot of R&D dollars going in, a lot of testing, a lot of pilots. But uh, some companies recognize if, if you wait a few years and your competitor starts leveraging these platforms to uh, gain market share, it could be it could be an issue. So um, so yeah, every every boardroom is talking about it right now. If they're not, it, it'd be concerning.
And just a final question, I, I ask sort of on behalf of investors who you know are looking at the market in different ways, have their clients invested in different areas. Where, where do you think this fund fits? Where, where might this fit into someone's range of options that they would choose to invest for the future? I think this, this really fits for growth-oriented investors that have a long-term time horizon. This is a relatively low turnover fund. Again, I'm trying to harness these founders for years and years of growth and hopefully value creation. So I, I think a lot of clients that have an, that entrepreneurial spirit so they can relate to founders, they can relate to these unique individuals uh, that have a lot of their, their own money invested in their ideas, that would be a good fit. So growth-leaning, long-time horizon, entrepreneurial clients with, with a belief that, that these, these unique individuals can potentially be different and be something that they want to harness from an investment perspective. Yeah, fantastic. Dan Kelly, thank you very much for sharing your time and, and, and sharing with us you know, insight into how you're managing the fund. It's, it's been great to catch up. Thank you. Likewise, Pamela. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.